Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we turn music book authors loose. I'm Steve J, your host, and today we dive into The Smell of Death, Bruce Duff's hilarious account of life on the road pre-cell phone with an indie punk rock band. Welcome, Bruce. How you doing? Good, thanks. So I loved your book. I thought it was hilarious. And uh, it opens with a horrifying account of your band opening for Gigi Allen. His stage annex, a lot of people know, but it uh, also named your book and supplied a bit of foreshadowing of what lay ahead. You called it the essence of what is on the heels of every musician traveling on a low-budget tour. Can you fill our listeners in on that Gigi Allen gig, the title of your book, and what you meant in that description? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of people get sort of... uh wrapped up in that first chapter and and then it is a little bit of a slow decline and ramp back up uh that's sort of why i put that first to get it going but um you know the title really didn't come to me until we were uh in spain and i I don't know what was going on there but it was odorous and and it just seemed like that was something that kept popping up along the journey as a world of strange smells haunting you uh so it wasn't necessarily Gigi that titled the book but uh I came across Gigi, I believe, uh, Roar Music used to put out these cassette-only releases, and I was on a review thing from, uh, I think, Music Connection, where I reviewed things that were only on cassette. This would have been, oh, somewhere around 87, I'm guessing. And uh, I got, I think it was called Hated in the Nation, but I might have that mixed up with something else. Anyways, a Gigi cassette, and instead of any kind of write-up or, you know, bio or anything, they just sent a review by R.G. Smith from the Village Voice uh, about his show. And I was just, I go, this happened? This goes on? I was just sort of blown away that this existed. And then I listened to the tape, and I was like, well, some of this is actually pretty happening. And, uh, you know, I was playing with Jeff Dahl at the time. And he said to me at one point, hey, we're going to go up to San Francisco and play with Gigi Allen. Then he's going to come back here, and we're going to back him up on our records. And I was like, oh, well, that'll be interesting. So I was definitely very curious about the whole thing and sort of excited to play it. And the show, while fun and humorous in parts, was, uh, I don't know if horrific's the word, but definitely performance art taken three or four steps too far. (laughs) Well, for those of our fans who don't know, he tends to fling his own excrement around the stage and into the audience. So when you mentioned that, you know, if that was the high and then you go down and the low, I'm not sure whether flinging excrement is ever a high or a low. The club had covered the entire place with, uh, they'd taken all these like big industrial uh, trash bags and slid them open and used that as like a barrier against everything on the stage. And it was was just sort of an amazing event. Someone tried to steal my bass after the show while a girl that was hopped up on dope walked out the door carrying my bass and the drummer happened to see it. We ran down the street and got it from her. It was just bizarre, bizarre night. I'm sure. I'm, I'm unsure if, I, as a paying customer, if I walk in and everything's covered in plastic, I'm not sure I'm staying. But uh. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, there was no secret about what everyone was in for. I mean, his reputation had preceded him, and, uh, you know, people were curious and, and buying tickets. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, and as soon as he went on, everybody jammed to the front of the room. And it was... <laughs> And he, you know, he doesn't leave them waiting like, uh, you know, he puts the encore first, shall we say. Well, if memory serves, actually, you had a good seat kind of standing at the back, ducking behind a girl or something, right? Yeah, I was on a, I was on a, we, well, I was over, it was, it was one of these clubs where there was a stage 
and then the in front of the stage, and then a kind of a open um, kind of passageway into a bar that was a pretty big door. It wasn't a door really; it was just sort of like just like a 20-foot uh, passageway between the two rooms. And I was in the bar talking with some friends of mine from San Francisco that I used to, had, used to play with, and uh, I was really kind of more interested in, in getting back together with them. And at one point, I'm like, well, i got to see what's going on. And there was an empty chair, and I stood up on it and put me, you know, above head level of everybody, and I could see the stage, and that's when I got just slammed by the odor of what has, was going on. You know, and that's something when you when you read these reviews and stuff, it's like, oh, my God, that must look horrible and what a visual affront. But I didn't even think of, oh, there's going to be a little uh, few other sensory overloads with that as well. Yeah, and, you know, The Smell of Death, uh, it's just a great uh, title. And, you know, I think you extrapolate that a bit. And is is that something you think that most of the indie touring bands would recognize, even just as a conceptual piece, The Smell of Death and that stench, what, what lies ahead for them? Oh, I, you know, I don't know about that. I think I was really just looking for a, a, a grab-you title that you would go, what is this about, more than like, oh, yeah, that describes the whole scenario. I, I just wanted something that kind of hooked people from the outset and made them want to check it out a little bit. And then, uh, you know, the publisher kind of attached the whole Hunter Thompson look to the cover. Uh, I had initially wanted to have, well, I mean, there's a lot of Hunter-esque things in the book, including the illustrations, which was a big thing for me. Uh, I really wanted to have it illustrated like that, like he did with Ralph Steadman. And I wanted to have uh, the artist do an illustration for the cover, uh, but unfortunately, that was an extra cost that they couldn't quite cover, so they came up with this, which I, I still think looks pretty cool. It definitely gives it that Thompson flavor, which quite admittedly I was reading during the time uh, we were on the road, and it had a big effect on me, and I loved the whole paranoia and world crashing down even in the simplest of things that Hunter can do, and, and that was definitely part of it. There's a lot of exaggeration and over-emotional reaction to things that I think happens on the road naturally and i definitely wanted to get that out there well the hunter thompson thing that you mentioned definitely comes through you know with an indie punk vibe but you know for our fans who want to go out and check out this book you should pick up a copy because the illustrations are absolutely brilliant they are just so good and and they do fit the whole ralph steadman thing that you mentioned and then i close the book and i see the typography on the front which is very consistent did you know the illustrator? Did you provide him with any kind of... Yeah, it's it's kind of funny how the whole thing came about. So, you know, the book, by the time it got published, was over 20 years old. I, I wrote it back when it happened and took it around to a few publishers. I uh, had some connections through the writing world and the journalism world to some pretty big publishers that were, uh, you know, vested in music business type, well, music type books. And they all passed, all saying the same thing, that no one knows who these people are and we can't sell this. Clock rolls forward, a uh, little quick anecdote. My wife is the uh, announcer for our local uh, bank track roller derby team, the LA Derby Dolls. So she was at a game and, you know, she's got to do the in-between commentary and all this stuff. And sometimes it gets a little off track from what you're actually watching. And she somehow got on this jag of all these Kurt Vonnegut jokes. And I was laughing. And I was like, you know what? I just don't think your crowd here is uh, understanding the Kurt Vonnegut jokes. It's just my opinion. And so this girl came up to her literally right after that. was like, I love the Kurt Vonnegut jokes. Of course. And uh, she turned out to be another skater who, as fate would have it, was the uh, one of the co-people, uh, one of the co-editors and original people behind Rare Bird Books. So Elsa slipped her my book and didn't even tell me about it. 
and said, my husband wrote this book, he can't get burned, so see if, see what you guys think. And they said, oh, we'll put it out. And I said, well, I always wanted to have an illustrator. So I hit up this fellow named Amick, who is a pretty well-known poster artist, and I used to work with him a ton back at Triple X Records, and he did a bunch of covers for us, and I'm just a huge fan. But he's a little out of the price range now, and he didn't want to do it, and he was busy with other stuff. So back to the roller derby community, Elsa's like, well, there's a girl that skates with us whom you know but you probably didn't know she does this she's a she's a simpsons animator she's like the real deal i think she would love to do this and that's who ended up doing it she uh, does her um illustrations and sells a lot of kind of bizarre almost semi-pornographic satirical humor uh under the name a person and if i don't think they quite gave her the the spot on the cover or anywhere in the credits that I would like, but it does say that illustrations by a person and, and her little signatures on all the things. But I was super happy with it when I saw it. You know, she read just enough to kind of draw everybody to, it was not, it, everybody was sort of shocked at how the people in the, in the story looked like they really looked. And I didn't supply her with any photos or anything. She just sort of got that out of, uh, that was her impression from what she was reading. And it was just uh, hilarious to me that she got so close. Oh, it's it, They're amazing. And one of the things I found myself doing, because, you know, sometimes you're reading and you don't, you flip past the illustration and then it's a very, she's, she does a very specific scene. And then you're reading in the book and you're like, oh, that's that scene that she illustrated. So you flip back to check it out and to see what exactly that should look like. And most of the time when I wasn't laughing, I was just flipping back and forth between the two. And she did a wonderful job and uh, they're really perfect for the story. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I couldn't have been happier. And then we did uh, one, I think one of the first book readings we did at an art gallery. And so I read and she brought down a ton of her stuff and was selling it. And it was, it was a cool event. Very cool to hear it's a woman too, because some of them uh, tackle some pretty rough subject matter. Uh, well, she, she doesn't shy away from the roughness in her own work. I promise you that. You mentioned that the book was initially turned down because they said, oh, we haven't heard any of these people. One of the things I got out of the book, and I'm guessing most bands who've done this type of tour, which is, you know, a van tour, per diems, all of that kind of thing, would probably recognize a lot of the characters that you draw, you know, as kind of a sui generis on the road. Well, it's hard for me to say because I, I was there, but, you know... A lot of my friends go on the road, and it's sort of a favorite to take and throw in the van, and as you're riding around, people share and pass around, and somebody reads one chapter, somebody reads the other, and I always hear back, yeah, that's kind of how it goes, you know, so everybody finds these scenarios still, all these years later, uh, quite familiar. I mean, the big change since, you know, the early 90s and mid-90s when this stuff was happening is just our technological advantage, GPS. Uh, I mean, the tour after this, we had these two German guys uh, when I was in the ads, which was an adolescence offshoot. Uh, there was a few times we'd be riding around in these van with these guys, and they didn't like us particularly. I, I wasn't quite sure why they even had this job because they just seemed to like, want to torment us most of the time. And we would like look at them trying to get us to the next gig, and you know we're the dumb Americans, and we go, uh, hey, you know, you got the map upside down. If you turn it up the, you know, where north is towards the top, we're going to have a lot better of a chance of finding this place. So those kind of things are gone now. You can have GPS, and everybody can text back home, and you can stay connected much, much easier. I mean, it was a big deal to call anyone from the road from a if you know a venue would let you attempt to make a long distance call from their phone and that was complicated too and you know those things have definitely changed 
I can see that it makes it easier, but my guess is just from reading your book, I guess a lot of the behavior and the road relationships probably still exist in some oh, way that sure. you describe. I mean, like your road manager, Simon, and especially I think it's Tim, the merchandise dude. Those guys, they're hilarious, and you guys show no mercy to those guys. Well, yeah, and I mean, I you know, I manage bands for a living, and a lot of times, uh, even though I might you know, a manager advises, he doesn't control, uh, a lot of time they will uh, take out a, a merchandise person who's like a pal, and he, oh, this is, we know this guy, he'll be great, and then he gets on the road, and it's just a big party, and he doesn't count things in, and ooh, there's money missing, and the uh, everything doesn't add up at the end, so that happens a lot. You know, one of the things that uh, you just mentioned is your your German compatriots there. I thought one of the really funny, but I guess chilling in a way, parts of the book was some German fans came up to you, I think it was in Denmark, or one of the other countries, and they warned you about your merchandise. And they said, don't bring that to Germany because the streets will run red with your blood. <laughs> there was an Iron Cross because, you know, the use of the Iron Cross goes back to like, you know, 60s biker flicks and all that kind of stuff. It's just always been sort of, you know, heavy rock, Detroit rock kind of iconography or and uh, so it ended up on the T-shirt. It was just something Jeff wanted to do, and he basically just ignored it. And I'm sure everything's going to be fine. And it was, but it was just sort of humorous to have uh, these people kind of warn us about this stuff. I mean, interacting with German people in regards to any of their participation in the first two world wars can be unique. Some of them don't even really know what went on, and it's it's kind of like, you know, our saga with the American Indians or uh, slavery, how it's taught here in the United States. It's kind of whitewashed a little bit, as we all know. And over there, it's, it's sort of similar in, in terms of like uh, German nationalism and all that kind of stuff, and, and uh, some people react to it stronger and really freak out, and other people kind of don't even know about it. So it, it's a strange thing. I'll tell you a little funny aside, not that funny, actually, as we just celebrated the anniversary of his passing. But uh, Roz Williams, who I dealt with a ton at Triple uh, X Records, uh, we gave all these guys, you know, free reign on their album covers and what they said on the records. We never censored anybody. He came in with this album cover, which was, I believe, his, turned out to be his last cover. One of his, It was his last solo album. And the and the uh, photo was of him with this sort of rotting death mask on, shirtless, with a knife up to his neck and a Nazi flag behind him. And we and I was like, well, Roz, you know, I, I don't want to tell you what to do, but you know, it, you you sell a lot of records in Germany. They won't stock this. This won't. They won't pick it up. They're, this isn't going to sell anything there. And uh, this will be banned. I mean, if you want that kind of attention, okay. But I, I don't think it's a good idea. And he kind of looked at me and he just sort of made this face and he left. And he came back and he goes, okay, I have the new cover. And it was the exact same cover with an American flag. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, we can put this out. You know, but when it comes to German stuff, you do got to be careful. But in the end, the whole thing with the Iron Cross was a big nothing. No one cared. People were buying the shirts. I was just going to ask about that because I didn't see whether you did or didn't have the merch specifically, but uh, you did and no issues there, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. We went ahead and sold it. I mean, some people might have mentioned it here and there, but like uh, the streets did not run red with blood. Um, so Jeff Dahl was the leader of the band uh, that you played bass with. And what's your relationship with Jeff and, and the members of the band? Have they read the book? Uh, yes, everyone has read the book. Uh, if not, well, here's a, here's a thing I don't talk about much, but... 
When I wrote the book, I used everyone's real name and everything, or at least their nickname on the road, because I wanted to keep it all straight in my brain. My idea was always when I got it published, I'm going to change all these names out and not ask for anyone's permission. And it reads like a novel anyways. And it's been hammered into my brain that no one knows who these people are. So who cares what their names are? That was always my idea. And the publisher at Rare Bird, he was like, oh, no, it has to be the real thing. And it has to be published as, as nonfiction. I'm like, it has to? Who cares? Because, no, that's how we're going to sell it. And the fact that this was a real slice of life from 20 years ago is what makes it cool. And, you know, everyone talked me into it. So I said, OK. So then I had to go get everyone's uh, here. This is coming out. What do you guys think? And Jeff perhaps wasn't thrilled, but he's like, yeah, that's pretty much how it went down. Put her out. And, uh, the the guitar player in the band Rat Boy, he only he asked me to take a few things out, which I did. He's not the you know gritty rock and roll guitar player from the East Side of New York any longer. He uh, has a whole different thing happening in his life, and he just wanted to keep that sort of to the side, which I respected. Z, the drummer Jeff Zamitti, he was best man at my wedding. And I still see him quite a lot. He's here in town, owns a wine shop. And yeah, I still am in touch with Jeff. He's in Hawaii now. I haven't seen him in a long time. I saw his wife. She comes over here and visits every December. And we stay in touch across uh, Facebook and stuff. I love to hear Jeff's, it is what it is. That's the way it happened because uh, it makes it just that much more honest and believable because it is a crazy book. One of the interesting things I thought was your band, the band, I think it was the Jeff Dahl band was the name, correct? When you started out on the road? Yeah. The band eventually got dubbed Fact Sheet. Oh, yeah, that was an inside joke. Yeah, that's a really funny story, though. Yeah, that was from a newspaper article, and it was they called this Jeff Dahl and Fact Sheet. And we're like, where did that come from? And we were just kind of confused by it, and we, we just started calling each other that just because it was funny. Jeff Zamitti, the drummer, was like, oh, I know what it is. It's when we sent out the initial press to the agent in Europe, you know, it, had, it just said Jeff Dahl Fact Sheet. Like, it was an information sheet. Like, here's here's his records, here's his story, here's what he does. And somewhere along the line, one of the newspapers thought that must be the name of the band. It's funny how everyone bought into it towards the end, though, and call, started calling each other that. And uh, it was just one of those uh, really funny stories, I thought. Aside from the funny stories in your book, um, there's a couple of really great quotations. And it's towards the end of the book, I guess, as everybody grows. I wanted to ask you about them and see if you could expand on them a little bit. Uh, the first one made me laugh out loud, as, as much of your book did, but it was the perfect summation of a less than a stellar tour. And you said, it's hard to be so completely dysfunctional so consistently, but we try. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, that, I think a lot of bands can identify that because if you're in a van tour, it's just, you're like in a spaceship. You're like, this is it. You can't get out. You, you just have You just have to figure out a, a way to get to the next place without killing each other or getting in an argument or what have you. And at the time, for whatever reason, in the early 90s, the vans were particularly thin and tall. You would stack stuff up, but you would be crammed together a lot. A lot of that had to do with uh, like older school European cross-country line rows were just thinner and more battered up. That's not really the case anymore as much. Uh, but yeah, it was a close environment, man. So you, you really had to like try to keep that dysfunctionality uh, at the wayside just to sort of get along during the day. Sometimes that meant just not talking, which was which is okay. I mean, I know that uh, in the next tour I was talking about with the, the German cats and the ads, we had a motto, it's okay not to talk. 
Well, I got to say, though, the other favorite quotation I have is where you do expound a little bit. I believe it's to Rap Boy who said, you know, music is the, the main reason to do this. And with your experience, you corrected him and you said, no, the music is the excuse for the passport. The tour is about the adventure, the exploration of the unknown. The adventure will ultimately provide the next collection of art, the new music, the future inspiration. I thought that was pretty compelling advice. Well, I mean, I hope so. It's hard. It, it's a tough one for me because I'm still at it. I still play. I still travel. I still exclusively in music uh, from the business end and the, and the playing and production end. And, you know, you just got to really be dedicated to that, to the music itself, or else, you know, it just becomes un just another job, just another way of laboring to try to keep bread on the table that you begin to resent. And I never want that to happen. I always want, uh, it's always important to me, even if it's not the most popular music, to be playing music I love so that, you know, I'm always, okay, I'm going to go at least go do something I really dig, you know, when I, when I, cause you know, a lot of times you roll into a venue, even if it's just a local show and like, Oh, I'm here again, or this thing, and you can kind of get down on it, but nah, but I'm going to be playing with my friends. We're going to be making some good noise. It'll be great. Well, you're playing in a new band now called Sacred Cowboys, and that's fronted by W. Earl Brown, who starred in HBO's the Deadwood series, which was fantastic. Got to ask you, what does your life smell like now? Well, you know, we got this uh, monthly residency, that, so we're cranking out a bunch of material and uh, working on an EP, which will hopefully be out around the time of the uh, the movie hitting HBO, which is right at the end of May, working as fast as we can. Uh, and then we're going to go play a Deadwood premiere. I don't know where it is yet. I literally just heard about that an hour ago. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I've played Americana-type stuff before with a gentleman named Simon Stokes, who I worked with for years and years. But this is a little different. It's uh, It veers a little bit more into actual kind of 70s hard rock, and it's a little bit, you know, strictly Americana. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a learning experience for me as well. But I enjoy the guys, and uh, everybody's really cool, and it's fun to work on. Well, congratulations on that. I thanks, hope thanks. it smells more like roses than death. Also, congratulations on your book, The Smell of Death. It was one of the funniest and most entertaining reads I've read in a while. Well, I, I totally appreciate that, man. That's, that's high praise coming from you. I love the site. So, you know, I know you're seeing a lot of different books. So when you say one sort of sticks out, that means a lot. Might have been the right book at the right time. I was on vacation looking for some totally escapism, and, and I found myself just sitting on the beach around my family laughing out loud, and they're just looking at me, and I was like, you wouldn't get it. For our listeners, well, I hope they'll go out and get it. It's, it's worth the read, and I want to thank you, Bruce, for uh, spending some time with us here. Yeah, man, it was a lot of fun. Anytime. I'd like to thank our guest, Bruce Duff. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. We'd appreciate it, and so would Bruce. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music that we play throughout our podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and at all of the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast.